We are going to be in Mark chapter 11, the very end of that chapter, and also the beginning of Mark chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, please open one up and find that. We'll be there in just a few minutes. Uh, my wife's name is Carla. I married a country girl. And more than a country girl, I married a girl that grew up on a farm in southern Wisconsin. And by the way, in the upper Midwest, the soil is actually black. I know that's hard to imagine, but it's nat that way naturally. Uh, God made the soil that way, and it's not sandy. Um, so we're in an agricultural part of the world in the Gospel of Mark and the land of Israel. And so I thought to get you thinking along those lines, you've probably seen these in social media, uh, I searched a couple of those lists that go through things like, you know you grew up on a farm if, and I asked my wife Carla, are these true? And so when I hit one that she'd laugh at and she'd say, oh yeah, that's really true, I wrote down two or three for you to, again, get you in that frame of mind. So you know that you grew up on a farm if you fear the words, cows are out. <laughs> now, I think I get what that means. They're out of the fenced-in area, but I don't quite get how that happens. I mean, cows are not deer. They can't jump over fences. They're not that intelligent. I don't think they can get up on their hind haunches and take their front hooves and open up gates. So how they get out of gates and fences uh, and yards, I don't know. But Carla said, yep, she heard that dozens of times growing up. Uh, you know you grew up on a farm if the county fair was considered the social event of the year. <laughs> so Carla goes, oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, she says um, her dad would pay she and her siblings, uh, they'd each take a row in the soybean field and he'd pay them 25 cents a row to weed it. And that's how they'd earn money to go to the county fair. So third and finally, you know you grew up on a farm if your town did not have a beauty queen pageant, but it did crown a dairy, pork, beef, apple, wheat, cranberry, or maple syrup queen or something similar. So maybe here down south in Hatchet, it'd be like a green chili queen. I don't know if they have that or not. Um, so Carla was actually crowned the dairy princess one year. And she said, man, prom, homecoming, that's nothing. But dairy was, uh, June was dairy month. And if you got crowned the princess, that was like everything. All right, in our text, uh, in fact, in the whole Bible, there are so many metaphors and images that use seeds, planting, crops, harvesting. Today we're going to look at a vineyard and we'll end up looking at a rock. And that's certainly something from the country that uh, we see a lot of here in New Mexico and they had a lot of rocks in Israel as well. Last week we saw that a fig tree was used by Jesus. And I had a couple people say, uh, I searched for fig tree in the Old Testament and I found that it's used symbolically a lot. And they're right. Same is going to be true of vineyard today. So that's our agricultural background. Let's launch into Mark chapter 11 at the end. So we'll start at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. This is Jesus and his disciples were in Passion Week, the week that leads up to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And as he, Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? 
answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held, that is the people, not the priests, uh, that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We're going to call this section, the leaders ask a question. So here's their question, we just saw it. Who gave you authority to do these things? Now, what are the these things? Well, if you remember last week, uh, we learn it from the immediate context, the paragraph or two before this in Mark chapter 11. And this is Jesus shutting down the temple. I said last week, he didn't cleanse it, he ended it. And so now we're at the next morning and either the temple is still shut down or they're trying to slowly regroup and get their business back uh, up and running. Either way, the leaders are pretty upset with Jesus. They want to trap him in whatever he says. So if Jesus says, my authority is from God himself, then the priests will have the right to imprison Jesus because the priests are the ones that rule the temple. And if anyone comes along and says, I'm over you, that's a way of saying, I'm either God or I'm sent directly from God and I hear directly from him and he's told me, I'm the authority, not you. So Jesus is going to answer their question eventually. We'll see that in chapter 12, uh, but not until he asks a question of them. And so he asks them, let me ask you one in return. We'll make a deal. You answer my question, I'll answer yours. By what authority did John the Baptist do his work and ministry? So let's be reminded a little bit here of John the Baptist's role and, and where the Old Testament predicted that he would come. We're not gonna turn there, I'll just tell you, you can look later. The very end of the Old Testament, book of Malachi, very last chapter, very last two verses of our Old Testament, God inspires Malachi to say this, before the day of the Lord comes, and Lord here is not uh, the generic master boss kind of Hebrew word, it's God's proper name, Yahweh or Jehovah. Before God himself comes to earth, Elijah will come and announce the coming of the Lord. Jesus tells us in the gospels that this was not literally Elijah, say come back from the dead, this was a prophet that would come in the spirit of Elijah and remind us of that first regular prophet in the Old Testament. And Jesus even tells us it's John the Baptist. So um, by bringing up John the Baptist, Jesus is already giving us kind of a backdoor teaching on his own deity, his own divinity. Why? Because that's what Malachi said. Elijah would come and announce the coming of the Lord himself the great day of the Lord, of Yahweh, God's physical coming to this earth. In fact, elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark, John the Baptist figures pretty importantly, pretty prominently, pretty significantly. Again, you could turn there back to Mark chapter one since you're in the Gospel of Mark, but I'll read that for you. You could just listen too. Here's how Mark begins his whole Gospel, verse one of chapter one the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's probably a title for his whole gospel. So he kind of starts it proper in verse two. 
As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, here's what the messenger says, prepare the way of the Lord. And again, Lord here is not the more general boss or master kind of Lord, it's God's proper name, Yahweh or Jehovah. Make his paths straight. Verse four, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. So again, in the gospels, John the Baptist is pretty important. Um, why? Because not just Malachi, but Isaiah, a second place in the Old Testament, state that this messenger will come right before God himself comes to earth. So you got all these prophets of the Old Testament, then Elijah, a second Elijah, and then God himself. The priests can't really say that John's authority comes from God because if they do, Jesus is gonna say, why didn't you obey him? You didn't. And second, uh, that would mean that the priests acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, not just an anointed one, but if they're connecting all the right dots, God himself, and they just can't do that. Or they physically can, but they morally choose not to. So the priests say nothing. However, Jesus will answer their question by a parable, and that's in Mark chapter 12. We're gonna call this section, Jesus Gives an Answer. So let me read to you Mark chapter 12, starting at verse one. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And then he leased it out to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they, this is the tenants that are taking care of the vineyard, took him and beat him and they sent him away empty handed. So he, we're back to the owner of the vineyard, sent to them another servant, but they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He, the owner, had one other person that he could send, a beloved son. Let's hit pause there for a minute. That phrase, beloved son, occurs two other times in the Gospel of Mark, very significant chapters. One is chapter one, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark at Jesus' baptism. The other, doesn't seem like it was all that long ago that Ryan preached on this, was uh, Mark chapter nine, the transfiguration where God calls Jesus his beloved son. So finally he, the owner, sent him, the son, to them saying, they will respect my son, verse seven. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So I think you can pick up on what most of these characters in the parable represent. Let's go through a list just to kind of confirm things. The vineyard is probably the people of Israel. Uh, if you ever want to read uh, where that occurs in the Old Testament, look at Isaiah chapter 5. There's a parable where God says, I made a vineyard, and that vineyard is the people of Israel. He tells us that in Isaiah 5. 
The owner here is God, just like Isaiah 5. The tenants are the religious leaders. So this is kind of cool. Jesus is replying to their question at the end of chapter 11 that we saw by putting them in a story. And I think they get the point by the end of the story. The servants are the prophets. In fact, God calls the Old Testament prophets by that term servants a number of times in the Old Testament. And we saw who the beloved son was. That, of course, is Jesus himself. So two things about this story. First, the tenants are shown as rejecting God's authority and wanting to do their own thing. They want to control and own the vineyard. They don't want to send anything back to the owner. More than that, they'd like to own it themselves. And so they try to kill, and indeed do kill, the son of the owner of the vineyard. So there's a clear connection here with the middle of Mark chapter 11 that we saw last week where Jesus comes into the temple to end it, noting that the leaders have done really the opposite of what God wanted done with the temple. In the Old Testament, God wanted all people groups in the temple worshiping. The Jewish leaders weren't allowing that. And God wanted it to be a place of prayer and it was a place of business. Second, the real authority in the parable is the beloved son, and he gets his authority directly from his father. So here Jesus is answering this question that he got asked. His authority comes from his father. So finally, let's look at a third passage. This is a continuation or kind of an application of the parable that starts in verse 10 of chapter 12. And we're going to see here that Jesus is pictured as a stone or a rock. And this picture really answers the question of the whole text. Not so much the question of the leaders, which is, where is your authority coming from? It's related to that, but the whole passage that we're looking at really begs the question, is Jesus trustworthy? He's ending the temple, and we know he'll begin a thing called the new covenant. Is he trustworthy? Can we follow him in this thing called the new covenant? So let's read this last word picture in Mark chapter 12, verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have you not read that? Are you not familiar with that Old Testament passage? Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. No, duh, he sure did. So they left him, and they went in a way. That quote in verse 10 is a direct quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm that also talks about the day of the Lord, the day when God himself comes to earth physically and visibly. So really, Psalm 118 is the third time we've had Christ's divinity implied. Here it's kind of outright taught. We had the end of Malachi 4, which is in the background of our text, whenever you mention John the Baptist. Then we had the beginning of Mark, which looked back at Isaiah, and now you've got Psalm 118. So Jesus himself becomes the cornerstone of a new temple, which is his body himself, one that is not made with human hands. In fact, by the time of Jesus, religious leaders had rightly so put together these Old Testament texts and come up to a conclusion that the Messiah would be a stone or a rock, and in some way would be the cornerstone of a new temple. They just didn't think Jesus was it. Another passage that talks about that is Isaiah chapter 28. 
I put that reference in your notes so you could look at that. I'll let you read that on your own. And here's one final passage that talks about the Messiah as a rock or a stone. I'll read one verse from this and kind of summarize it before I read that verse. It's from Daniel chapter 2. Some of you remember the story. In Daniel chapter 2, a king, a pagan king, has a dream. He sees this massive statue of a man. And it's made of four different metals. Part of his body is gold, part is silver, part is bronze, part is iron. But then God comes along and establishes a kingdom that destroys all these other kingdoms and launches a new kingdom that will live forever. Here's how God launches that. Daniel chapter 2, verse 45. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. So what might that mean? Probably not of human origin, but divine. So not something we made as human beings. We didn't produce this, this rock, this stone. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So you see all these cool passages, we haven't even looked at all of them, that talk about Christ as a stone or a rock. Jesus is trustworthy for a long list of reasons. Here are three of them. One is that he is this stone in Daniel 2 that destroys all other kingdoms. A second is that he's the cornerstone of the new temple, which is himself. We don't worship in a physical temple anymore. In fact, Peter, in his book, 1 Peter chapter 2, words it this way. He's the cornerstone. We're all the stones that make up the walls. And we here right now on Sunday morning are the place where God's presence dwells. So he's the rock in Daniel 2. He's the cornerstone of the temple. Indeed, he is the temple. And third and finally, as we've seen, he's God himself. That's the authority that we can trust in. We have you bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we thank you that Jesus, the Son of God and God the Son, was willing to let go of his privileges in heaven and become a man. Fully God and yet also man, a sinless man, we thank you that he went to the cross and endured pain that we can never imagine as our substitute. Father, keep us walking toward the heavenly country, our true home. Support us by the strength of your Holy Spirit that we not desire false pleasures that disappear into nothing. Keep in us a burning desire for you. And thank you for reminding us that you, God, are our rock, our refuge, and our cornerstone this morning. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.